0: In this ongoing sermon series on parables and miracles. Today we come to a parable, one of the most well-known parables that Jesus taught, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want you to quickly review what we know to be true about all parables. Number one, parables always teach from the known to the unknown. Number two, about one-third of our Lord's teachings while on earth were in parables. It was a very... Favorite kind of teaching Jesus had to use the parable. Number three, Jesus' parables always uh, either solved the problem that had arisen or they answered a question that had been raised. Number four, we must search each particular parable's preceding context to find out which problem or which question gave rise to the particular parable before us. And number five, it's impossible for us to know the accurate meaning interpretation of any parable if we try to superimpose our culture and our customs onto Jesus' time and his parable. This parable, like all others, we best and properly understood if we understood the customs and the culture of Jesus' day when he gave this parable. And so with these important reminders, I want to take us to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke Chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. Uh, Luke 10, beginning at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Go and do the same. By this point in our Lord's public ministry, the nation of Israel was pretty well aware that Jesus was offering himself to them as their long-expected Messiah King. I mean, Jesus' remarkable words and his even more, perhaps, remarkable works made that very apparent to the casually observing Jew, that he was presenting himself to them as their Messiah, as their king for their kingdom. All of this caused a a heightened awareness about being righteous. Jews who didn't give much thought before all this to being righteous gave a lot of thought to being righteous when they were coming to understand that this man before them who they could hear and could see what he was doing, was bringing the kingdom they all longed for near. And so there was a new and awakened awareness of righteousness. What is righteousness? How do you have enough of it to enter this kingdom? You see, kingdom was on the hearts and the minds of Jesus' contemporaries who were Jewish. They were thinking about kingdom, Kingdom was their prize. Heaven wasn't what they were thinking about. They were thinking about the promised kingdom. That was what they cared about. And so we need to know, as we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the lawyer who came to Jesus and asked the questions that raised the parable to be taught had kingdom on his mind. And all of the first readers of this account of this parable of the Good Samaritan also had kingdom on their minds. Really, it was so when Jesus appeared on the banks of the River Jordan, and John the Baptist had been baptizing Jewish people in the the river for the repentance of their sins. Of course, Jesus didn't come to be baptized in the river by John because he had any sins to repent of. He was coming to uh, identify himself with a nation that needed to repent. He was coming to be baptized in obedience to his heavenly father who had commissioned him as the king to come to earth to say the kingdom of God is near. And so on that occasion, when Jesus appeared out of somewhat obscurity, living 30 years of obscurity in a little backwater place called Nazareth as his daddy, Joseph's carpenter, uh, go boy, Joe boy, He came out of that obscurity and anonymity onto the river Jordan's banks and presented himself to John to be baptized by John. And you remember that John's message when he was baptizing all the hordes of Jewish people he was baptizing, he had a single message, John the Baptist did. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And boy, was it ever at hand when the king of the kingdom showed up at the river that day. Repent, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, John the Baptist said. And so kingdom was on their minds at that particular time. And then if you fast forward three and a half years past the baptism of Jesus by John, when he said and preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Three and a half years forward, at the end of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry... At the time of his ascension back to his father's right hand, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after 40 days of being seen by eyewitnesses as being alive from the dead, after all that, kingdom was still on his disciples' minds. And when they had one opportunity to ask the risen Christ a question before they would never see him again, literally, before they physically died, their question of Jesus at the time of the ascension was a kingdom question. And it's recorded for us in Acts 1, verse 6, their kingdom question, it says. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They had kingdom on their minds. They did when he appeared to be baptized. They did all through his ministry. And at the end of his ministry, before his ascension, they had kingdom on their minds. And the lawyer who came to Jesus asking the questions he asked had kingdom on his mind as well. And so the lawyer, when he asked Jesus about inheriting eternal life, he wasn't asking Jesus a question about what we would say, how to get saved. That wasn't the lawyer's question. Nor was he asking, how do I get to heaven? That wasn't the lawyer's question. The lawyer's question, and he used the term eternal life to mean kingdom. How do I qualify to get into this kingdom? I don't want to miss this kingdom. How righteous do I have to be to get into this kingdom? That was the lawyer's thinking. That's what he was wondering. And in verse 25 of Luke 10, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? May I say it again? Eternal life to this lawyer, this Jew, was not heaven like it might be in our thinking. It was kingdom. Very important. This is why Jesus gave the lawyer two answers with he must do something. Because the lawyer wasn't asking about getting saved, because the lawyer wasn't asking about even making it to heaven, but because the lawyer was wanting to know what he should do to get qualification to get into the kingdom, Jesus answered him with two things he had to do. In verse 28, Jesus said, do this and you'll live. And then in verse 37, Jesus answered him, go and do the same. By the way, let me just say a few things about salvation. Salvation from Genesis to Revelation is always by God's grace through a person's belief in God. But what God prescribes a person to put their faith in, to demonstrate their faith in him, has changed. God has stipulated that to be different. So for instance, Noah was saved with his family by God's grace as they expressed faith in God to build an ark. Why were they to build an ark? Because there would be a global flood. What's a global flood? It's a big, 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 big rainstorm. What's a rainstorm, Noah asked. Never seen it. So Noah was saved by God's grace when he obeyed God and built an ark, being mocked by everybody who passed by when he swung the hammer. Salvation is by God's grace through faith, but what God requires a person to put faith in has changed over time. Noah's an example. What about Abraham? Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and that faith was demonstrated that he took his teenage 16-year-old promised son Isaac to a place where he was going to kill him in obedience to God to make him a human sacrifice. By the way, the boy got up on the altar, too. He must have had a lot of faith. A 16-year-old boy who was panicked could take down an old father. Remember how old Abraham was when he had Isaac? But the boy got on the altar. They both had faith. They both had faith that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead after he was a human sacrifice. But as you know, God stopped Abraham before he Uh, put the blade of the knife into his son, but Abraham was saved through faith in God, grace of God, faith of God, to provide somehow a resurrection for Isaac after he would be sacrificed. Amazing. Or Moses. Moses had every educational and cultural advantage being raised in Egypt, but he stuttered. He couldn't speak very well. He would, his words would tangle up his tongue, and God directed him to go and stand before the most powerful ruler in the known world, the Pharaoh of Egypt, to basically tell the Pharaoh of Egypt to let all the four million Jews go from slavery. You got to know it, that when Moses went into Pharaoh's court for a time with Pharaoh, he had tremendous faith in God to do what needed to be done. Because he didn't talk very well, he stuttered. Moses was saved by God's grace through faith in trusting God to provide a way for him to speak to the Pharaoh and trusting God to find a way for four million hard-driven slaves to get out of Egypt. What about the nation of Israel as a whole? The nation of Israel will be in heaven when we get there because they were saved by God's grace through the faith that they exhibited by following the Old Testament sacrificial system, sacrificing the prescribed animals when they were supposed to prescribe them, and all of these different things that God dictated to them under careful instruction through the Old Testament scriptures. Or what about Ruth? She wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile. Her husband and her father-in-law died in Moab, an idol-worshiping country. And was she saved? Well, yes, she was saved by placing her faith in God as he dictated to her not to go back to Moab, not to go back to the Moabite idols, not to feather her own nest and find a young Moabite husband to marry since she was a widow, but to stay with Ruth, her mother-in-law, to worship the true God of Israel. So salvation from Genesis to Revelation is always based on God's incredible grace, And the person having faith in God is expressed in the ways that God dictates to the person ought to express faith in God. Now, of course, since Mount Calvary, since the Lord's Supper reference point of the cross of Jesus Christ, God demands, prescribes, intends, wills for persons who will be brought into saving grace to accept God's grace through the finished work of Christ and to place their total faith in Christ alone, crucified, resurrected from the dead. I trust that's your portion and your testimony and your faith this morning. And so before the cross, persons were saved by God's grace and their faith in God. And that faith in God took different faces according to what God dictated. And then after the cross, where we live in the shadow of the cross, all persons are always saved by God's grace and by our faith placed fully on the finished work of Christ on the cross. So that's a little backdrop to salvation, okay? And so now we circle back to Jesus parable of the good samaritan. So the Lord Jesus did not tell this lawyer to get saved by treating his neighbor right. That wasn't Jesus lesson. Because neighborliness, if we're honest, neighborliness can easily be done without any faith in God. You can be neighborly without having any faith in God. We see it all the time. There are non-Christians who are very kind and helpful to others. (laughs) Just determining to bake cookies for a person next door. Just deciding to wash someone else's vehicle for free at Saunders Beach Parking. Just paying for someone's lunch at your work. Nice persons exist without Christ, but they're not saved. They're simply nice. Loving persons are possible without salvation, but they're not bound for heaven. They're just merely loving. Good living persons are possible without Jesus as Savior, but they're not forgiven. They're only moral. True salvation, as I know that you know, true salvation from sin takes being more than nice and being more than loving and being more than moral. It takes faith in the finished work of Christ. Humble faith. Genuine faith. Desperate faith, exclusive faith in Christ that makes a person right with God and makes heaven the final destination and home. When someone subtracts faith in Jesus Christ from their understood way of salvation, they are left with works-based salvation. A salvation that in their mind construct is possible without a faith in Jesus Christ. But I hear to tell you what you already know, I think, that if you take faith in Jesus Christ out of what you understand to be the way that you are saved, you are left with no salvation at all. No salvation at all. That's true whether you're looking at the Old Testament or whether you're looking at the New Testament. Let me start with a New Testament reference that goes back to the Old Testament reality. Galatians 2, 16 and 17. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, end of quote. By the way, do you know that why no flesh at all, 0%, will be justified by the works of the law? Because to keep the law, you have to keep all of the law all of the time. And if you break one little piece of God's law, God views it as though you've broken all of his law. And there is no one who can keep 100% of God's law 100% of the time. The only one who could was Jesus. He fulfilled God's law. So Galatians 2, 16 and 17 are looking back at the teaching on the law of God found in all of the Old Testament and saying nobody makes it to be right with God trying to keep the law because you can't keep it successfully 100%, 100% of the time. Then in the New Testament, we hear the very same thing. In Titus three verses four and seven, four to seven, but when the kindness of God our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Mercy is a major theme of this parable. But according to his mercy, God's mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So whether you look at the Old Testament or whether you look at the New Testament, you will not find anybody being justified by God through their works because our works are not adequate. Now, the lawyer's question here about having enough righteousness was a question about having enough righteousness to qualify for the kingdom. The lawyer's question, we might say, was a sanctification question and not a justification question. Now, there's something here that we should not miss. The kingdom was on Jewish minds. At the start of Jesus' ministry, Throughout all of Jesus' ministry, and at the end of Jesus' ministry, right up to the ascension back to his Father in heaven, the kingdom was on Jewish minds. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. And at the very last opportunity that his followers had to ask him one last possible question, it was a kingdom question they asked Jesus. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts six. And so for the first hearers of this parable of the Good Samaritan, kingdom was right here. That's what they were thinking about. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were longing for. That's what they were anticipating. Kingdom. Now, the Old Testament had made it clear to them in many different places, that to qualify to be in the kingdom that was coming, you had to be righteous. They knew that. But when the king is here, when the kingdom is near, they were very acutely interested, what kind of righteousness did they have to exhibit? How did they know if they had enough righteousness to make the kingdom? Now, on top of those factors... There were the outside factors that these Jews who were astute and paying attention were well aware that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and many other public teaching uh, cases, he railed against the righteousness of the Pharisees. He called them blind guides. He called them a brood of poisonous snakes. He called them above ground burial places. He called them hypocrites. And so the average Jew who was wondering about the kingdom and whether he or she was qualified enough in righteousness to get into the kingdom, they also knew in a little compartment over here that the most righteous guys they knew about, the most righteous guys they looked up to, Jesus said didn't have enough righteousness to make the kingdom. So they bound to be thinking, what hope is there for me? If these religious guys who pray in public with long prayers and collect tithes and teach the Torah, if these guys aren't righteous enough for the kingdom according to Jesus, then who of us is? And so the lawyer went to Jesus and asked, how will I know if I'm righteous enough to get into the kingdom? Verse 25, the lawyer's first question And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get into the kingdom? Verse 29, But wishing to justify himself, the lawyer, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He quotes the scripture in the Deuteronomy and says that he's to love his God and to love his neighbor. And then he turns around and puts it on the ear trying to trap Jesus. He says, who's my neighbor? So these questions, what can a person do to get eternal life or get into the kingdom? And uh, who's my neighbor gave rise to the parable of the good Samaritan? Now, in verse 25, it makes clear to us that the two questions were not raised by just any old person. They were raised by a lawyer, by an expert in the Old Testament law. Of course, down to today, we have some lawyers with us today. I thank the Lord that you're here. But down to today, lawyers get paid good money to ask right questions, right? And this guy was the same. He was asking the right questions. He asked Jesus for Jesus' opinion on the law. That was quite a compliment since Jesus never went to law school. To hear this expert in the law asked Jesus who never went to law school to interpret the law. Quite a compliment. Evidently, the lawyer in this scene here had enough knowledge of Jesus, enough knowledge to what he has taught, enough knowledge to see how he stood up to the Pharisees, enough knowledge to understand that his teachings were with authority and consistency and no contradiction and no hypocrisy, that he wants to know from this unschooled rabbi what do I do to get into the kingdom who's my neighbor 30 to 37 Jesus replied a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead by chance a certain priest was going down on that road When he saw him, he passed on by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you. Which of these three do you suppose proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, that's the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go. Do the same. This parable is something we ought to be beware of. It seems so lifeless and harmless on the pages of our Bibles, but really it's a booby trap. And if you handle this passage with any attention, it'll spring on you and call you into greater compassion. The lawyer may have sought to trap Jesus with a question of what do you do to get into the kingdom and who, in fact, is my neighbor. He may have tried to set a trap for Jesus, but the Lord Jesus set a trap that's still on the pages of our Bibles today. Beware. This booby trap of the parable of the Good Samaritan will spring down on our indifference and will tether us to a radical new compassion. Jericho and Jerusalem were 12 miles apart, roughly half of our island east to west. And the road which connected the places cut through a very rocky desert. No one lived on this road. No one lived near this road. There were plenty of hiding places all along this road. It was a bandit's dream, and it was a traveler's nightmare. There's something called the Magnificent Mile in Chicago. The Magnificent Mile in Chicago runs parallel to the shore of Lake Michigan, and all of the most upscale commercial properties in all the city of Chicago are on this Magnificent Mile. And all the best shopping, the most expensive shopping in Chicago is along this Magnificent Mile. Well, this was not a Magnificent Mile. It was 12 miles of maybe you'll make it maybe you'll make it highway. Persons who had to travel that road only did so in groups. And they only did so in daylight hours. You wouldn't go alone, and you wouldn't go at night. Danger was too great. But interestingly, in our Lord's story, the traveler was alone. Turns out he really needed a neighbor. Well, As you know, the bandits in Jesus' story violently assaulted this lone traveler. They stole everything, even his clothes. The man was so badly beaten that he almost died. He certainly could not have helped himself to get any help. He was in obvious distress and need, And after a while, as he lay there bleeding, two religious leaders walked up to the injured man. Good, you say. This story will have a happy ending. Wrong. Although two religious leaders walked up to him, one religious guy passed by first. He was the priest and the second religious guy who passed by second was a Levite. You need to know that both priests and Levites were wealthy men. Part of what it meant to be a Levite or to be a priest was you had above-average income and wealth accumulated. So both of these men who came upon the beaten-up man in Jesus' story could have helped him in no difficulty at all with finances. The cost, whatever it would take to help this man back to life and strength, both of these men could easily have paid. They were rich, but they didn't help. One by one, these two religious guys both walked away without helping the injured man at all. Hey, you're nearly dead, eh? They saw the need. They could have met the need. They refused to meet the need. And they walked away from the need. Both of them. Now, so far in Jesus' parable, everybody's Jewish. Jewish traveler, Jewish priest, Jewish Levite. But if this parable had Hollywood soundtrack, at this point in the story, you would hear, boom, 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 boom. A non-Jew enters the story. By the way, Jews recited the verse that the lawyer recited to Jesus when Jesus said, what is written in the law, how does it read to you? Then the lawyer parroted out what he often parroted out. In fact, every Jew said that verse from memory before they left their house every day. Maybe when he was dressing. Maybe when she was cooking breakfast. Maybe when the boys and girls were before they went out the door to go to school. The Jews, every day, said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. There I said it. And so the day the lawyer comes to Jesus and asks, how do you qualify in righteousness to get to the kingdom? He had said that before he left the house. So he pulled it up and said it again to Jesus. Add answer. And so the next part of the story, a non-Jew, a Samaritan, in fact, appears in the story. And ironically, he was walking along this most dangerous road alone, just like the mugged man walked down this most dangerous road alone. And this Samaritan traveler comes upon the Jew who is beaten up to near death and discovers him. Now, you need to know that to the Jews, Samaritans were outcasts. Jews hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated Jews. Jews understood Samaritans to be religious half-breeds. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, not in business, not in social, not in anything. In fact, most Jews would walk around Samaria a long way around it, so they wouldn't even have to be near Samaritans. That's why it was so amazing when Jesus walked through Samaria with his disciples to Sychar Well and met a Samaritan woman, and asked her for a drink, and she said, you're talking to me, a woman and a Samaritan? You being a Jew? She couldn't believe it. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And the next part of Jesus' story was totally embarrassing if you were a Jew, totally embarrassing. When the Samaritan of all people passing by saw the badly beaten Jew victim, he felt compassion for him. What? Verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion." Countercultural, cultural counter-religious, compassion. Jews never felt compassion for Samaritans. But here, the shoe being on the other foot, the Samaritan felt compassion on the Jew. All religious feuding was set aside and the Samaritan served the injured Jew. The Samaritan didn't just speak to the injured Jew, he served him. The Samaritan felt compassion and it moved him to respond to the fallen man's needs. By the way, true compassion always does that. It moves us to action. If I say I have compassion for a person and I don't do anything about it, I'm fooling myself. I do not have compassion for that person. Compassion is part of the heart of God. Where would we be if He didn't extend to us compassion? True compassion cures hypocrisy. And true compassion kills our armchair quarterbacking. Now, By this point in the parable, the Lord Jesus has given two negative examples, a priest and a Levite, and he's given one positive example, a Samaritan. And what are these examples of? These are examples of the necessary level of righteousness to make it into the kingdom. Remember, the lawyer says, how righteous do I have to be to get into the kingdom? And Jesus tells a story. He says, here are two examples of not enough righteousness to get into the kingdom, A Levite and a priest, guys you would have voted most likely to get in the kingdom. And here's a positive example of someone who has enough compassion to get into the kingdom. Someone you would have voted least likely to ever get in the kingdom, a Samaritan. There I said it, a Samaritan. So Jesus, having given the story, I picture the lawyer's mouth hanging open in disbelief. Jesus turns to the lawyer and says, which of these three do you suppose was the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. <laughs> the lawyer would have had to have been plenty dull to miss who the hero of this parable was. And the hero wasn't even a Jew. Ouch. He was a Samaritan. Ouch again. He was a second-class person in the lawyer's thinking who the lawyer would have been sure would never qualify for the kingdom. To a Jew, a Samaritan qualifying for the kingdom would be like pigs flying. When pigs fly. Additionally, it was probably a bucket of ice water in the face of the attorney that the hero of this story didn't waste any time figuring out if the bleeding, dying man was or was not a neighbor. Excuse me, let me just flip you over here. Are you a Jew? Who are your daddy's people? Do you have a denomination? Who are your mommy's people? Didn't do that. He saw he was dying. He was bleeding. He was not going to make it, except someone helped him, and he helped him. He had compassion on him. The hero of the story was Samaritan. Samaritan. And that Samaritan in this story held the bar so high when it comes to requisite righteousness with respect to compassion and the bar's never been taken down since Jesus gave the parable. And so maybe you're here, you say, who's my neighbor? One door down, two doors down, three doors down, if they don't play their music too loud at night. Who's my neighbor? Well, what we learned from this parable is that any person whose needs you know and whose needs you are able to meet is your neighbor. Did you hear that? Any person whose needs you know and whose needs you are able to meet is your neighbor. Could be down the street, could be beside you in your bed, could be across the world. Any person whose needs you know and whose needs you are able to meet is your neighbor. And the Samaritan, the unlikely hero of this parable, felt compassion, and that compassion put on its work clothes. Compassion always puts on work clothes. And the hero's compassion, when it put on work clothes, bandaged, transported, housed, paid, promised it, but what compassion in work clothes did not do is what the religious guys did. It did not walk away. 33 to 35. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them and put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Compassion in work clothes. There's something very serious and far from funny in the lawyer's answer, which is found in verse 37. After Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The lawyer's answer is very, very sad and serious. He said, the one who showed mercy to him. You know what? He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He hated them so much, he couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. The one who showed mercy toward him. It's like spitting bones, fish bones, out of a mouthful. The one who showed mercy toward him. (laughs) Friends, kingdom qualifying righteousness had to pass the show mercy test. Jesus said to this lawyer, this expert in the law who wanted to know what level of righteousness qualifies a person to get into the kingdom, that whatever the righteous level was, it had to pass the show mercy test. You don't show mercy, you can have all kinds of other righteousness, you don't make the kingdom. Because the kingdom will be characterized by mercy. Everybody who's in it will be there because of God's mercy. And only merciful persons will be in the kingdom. Are you merciful? What a parable. It looks so harmless on the page of your Bible and mine. But when you touch it, when you think of it, when you delve into it, it springs. And it comes down hard on indifference. And it tugs us to radical compassion so how is it that the spirit of god can take the parable from the word of god apply it to the head of the child of god such that the truth of the parable percolates from the believer's head to his or her heart to his or her hands to his or her feet how does that work i have four things to share with you in closing number 1 Since we have a merciful Savior, we are to show mercy wherever we can. We are, to put it another way, we are to be pipelines of God's mercy. God's mercy comes down upon each of our lives, and then our job and our joy is to pipeline God's mercy to as many persons as possible in a day. We get our water From Aquapure, some of you use Chelsea's Choice. I'm sure there are other choices too. But you know what I do know about Aquapure's delivery men? They're hoping to deliver all the jugs of water on their truck by the end of the day. They're hoping that they'll have enough water customers that they will give out the jugs of water. They don't drive around town proud of how many jugs of water they have on board their truck. They want to get the water to the thirsty people. That's how it would be with mercy. Not to wake up in the morning and just thank God profusely that he's merciful to you and then refuse to be merciful to others in your day. The cashier, the special needs child, the husband or the wife, the neighbor with the loud music, Since we have a merciful savior, we are to show mercy whenever we can. The second thing, for you and for me, it's faith that saves, but saving faith works. The book of James is all about that. It's faith that saves, but saving faith works. Our son is applying to an American college, and uh, FAFSA is an agency of the U.S. government that considers applications for financial aid to American students and gives some grants or loans depending on what they find out to be the case. And I was doing this FAFSA application with Beth for JD, and when I wasn't finished, (laughs) they had send me an email. Your application for FAFSA funds is incomplete. Action is required. When it comes to showing mercy and compassion, check your inbox from heaven. Maybe God's been sending you emails that say, action is required. Number three, Discernment is needed to figure out legitimate and fraudulent need. I wish I didn't have to say that. This is true in every country of the world. It's certainly true in the Bahamas. that There are persons who are legitimately in need, and then there are other persons who are not. They are frauds. My premise is that in showing compassion, I want discernment, so the help that I give to those who are legitimately in need is not stolen by the help I might give to someone who I know is a fraud. It's hard to say. It's real. So how do you discern legitimate from fraudulent need? Well, he starts with prayer. Ask the Lord for discernment. Second, it's common sense. Have alertness to what the person's saying to you. Be observant to other things you can see about the person. Have common sense. Somebody with three cell phones probably doesn't have the need he's depicting to you. Verification. To be a good steward of God's money is to verify need. How does that look? You want money to do this or that. How about I'll take you to a restaurant and give you a meal on me, and that will take money you may have had to pay to buy food, and you can put that money toward what you're talking about. No, I don't want to go to a restaurant. I had one man out there, main door to the church. He wanted food, so I directed him to the, our food pantry wasn't open at that particular time, so I said, go up to the uh, Great Commission Ministries on Wolf Road. He looked at me, and said, but they're not serving breakfast, they're serving lunch. I said, oh, I see, and you want breakfast? He goes, yeah, I want breakfast. I said, no. Can't make this up. Discernment is needed to figure out legitimate and fraudulent need. Prayer, common sense, verification. Last, fourth, and last, compassion, all that notwithstanding, all what I just said notwithstanding, I dare not become uncompassionate because people have done that to me or said that to me. I can't lose my compassion because being compassionate is being like Jesus. And so compassion is a feeling that we must never lose. It's too expensive to lose. One of the ways I try to keep compassion is to ask the question, what if it was me? What if what I'm being told and what if what I'm seeing was me? What would I want someone to do for me? Another way is love, to realize that God's love isn't a feeling. God's love is a choice. It's an action. It's discerning legitimate need and then giving to meet that need without cost for payback. Another thing is to to keep compassion, is to be humble, to realize that I may have been where that person is right now. Or Humility is to believe I could be where that person is right now. Maybe one of the most practical ways that we can try to ensure that compassion is a feeling that we never lose is to slow down how we live life. A young and successful executive was driving down a neighborhood street going a bit too fast in his new Jaguar. He was watching for kids darting out from between parked cars and slowed down when he thought he saw something. As his car passed, no children appeared. Instead, a brick smashed into the Jag's side door. He slammed on the brakes and backed his Jag back to the spot where the brick had been thrown. The angry driver then jumped out of the car, grabbed the nearest kid and pushed him up against a parked car and shouted, what was that all about and who are you? Just what the heck do you think you're doing? That's a new car and that brick you threw is going to cost a lot of money. Why did you do it? The young boy was apologetic. Please, mister, please, I'm sorry, but I didn't know what else to do, he pleaded. I threw the brick because no one else would stop. With tears dripping down his face and off his chin, the youth pointed to a spot just around a parked car. It's my brother, he said. He rolled off the curb and fell out of his wheelchair, and I can't lift him up. Now sobbing, the boy asked the stunned executive, Would you please help me get him back up into his wheelchair? He's hurt, and he's too heavy for me. Moved beyond words, the driver tried to swallow the rapidly swelling lump in his throat. He hurriedly lifted the handicapped boy back into his wheelchair and then took out a linen handkerchief and dabbed at the fresh scrapes and cuts. A quick look told him everything was going to be okay. Thank you, and may God bless you," the grateful child told the stranger. Too shook up for words, the man simply watched the boy push his wheelchair-bound brother down the sidewalk and toward their home. It was a long, slow walk back to the Jaguar. The damage was very noticeable. But the driver never bothered to repair the dent in the side door of his car. He kept the dent there to remind him of this message. Don't go through life so fast that somebody has to throw a brick at you to get your help. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You shall have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him and to us, go and do the same. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and your compassion that is new every morning that is so vast and immense that it can make reprobate rebels like me and my friends fit for heaven. Oh, Lord, may we bear a family resemblance to you in the living of our lives for your glory. Everyday lives. May we show mercy. Lord, may we work along with believing. May we have discernment and may we have compassion that is empathetic and action-oriented and humble, and lives that are slowed down enough that it doesn't take a brick. We pray these things in Jesus' name with rejoicing always. Amen.